Good morning, Stones River. I can't tell you how much it means to me to sing that song. I requested it. Um, and there's a strong likelihood I'll continue to request Rich Mullins songs. I've, I've done that before. Uh, for me, Rich is, um, well, he's as, he's as formative in his music uh, for me in my life as, as most anything else I could name. Um, I want to read you the lyrics of another song as we get started here. Let me tell you a little backstory, just because there's there's a there's a meaningfulness to this. Um, Rich Mullins and the Ragamuffin Band. Uh, Rich. Uh, Rich struggled. He struggled um, with alcoholism. He. Uh, he desperately wanted to follow Jesus as a musician. He desperately did not want to get caught up in the contemporary Christian music industry that was beginning to boom in the 80s, the 1980s. And one of the things that he did to give his life to Christ was to turn over the income from his very successful music to the elders of his church and asked only that he would be paid out of all of that income the uh, the amount of money that the average male single American would make, right? That average salary, which is back then would have been, you know, even lower than today, but today still is not a really high number, and that's what he wanted to live on, and he wanted the church to be the steward of the rest. And he moved to uh, live on a Native American reservation and focused especially on working with the kids there. Um, kind of lived out of a trailer, and uh, he loved he loved the ragamuffin Jesus that he encountered in the Bible. One of the last things that he did, which was out of character, was pull over in an abandoned church building and record the songs on a little audio record, audio cassette recorder for his new album. He wouldn't do that normally. In fact, his his producers at the at the recording company were usually pretty irritated with him because he wouldn't submit demo tapes. He refused to. He said, "If a song's worth singing, it's worth memorizing." And so he would come in and play his new songs in person uh, for them to decide whether they thought it was worthy of making a record. But for some reason, he pulled over randomly and recorded these songs. It was for an album to be called the, the Jesus Album. Songs about Jesus. And then shortly after, he tragically died in a car accident. But there was the cassette in his vehicle. And so... Uh, his friends in the music industry produced that album, one disc, with him just roughly singing on this terrible cassette recording, and then the other, they all collaborated to do the same songs in their voices as well. Here's one of those songs. Oh, you did not have a home. There were places you visited frequently. You took off your shoes and scratched your feet because you knew that the whole world belonged to the meek. 
but you did not have a home. No, you did not have a home. You did not take a wife. There were pretty maids all in a row who lined up to touch the hem of your robe, but you had no place to take them, so you did not take a wife. No, you did not take a wife. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man. No, you did not have a home. Well, you had no stones to throw. You came without an axe to grind. You did not tow the party line. No wonder sight came to the blind. You had no stones to throw. You had no stones to throw. And you rode an ass's foal. They spread their coats and cut down palms for you and your donkey to walk upon. But the world won't find what it thinks it wants on the back of an ass's foal. So I guess you had to get sold. Because the world can't stand what it can't own. And it can't own you because you did not have a home. Birds have nests. Foxes have dens. But the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man. No, you did not have a home. So, I'm going to turn our attention now to the passage that Jesus is quoting there. We'll be in Mark, I'm sorry, in Matthew 8 to begin with. In verse 14, actually, precedes the story that we're going to focus on this morning. But I want you to have in mind clearly what's happening at this moment in Jesus' ministry. The people who think they want to follow Jesus are figuring out what that might mean. What it might cost. Jump down to 8.18. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the lake. Then a scribe approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So that's important, that's relevant as we get into the boat, because it's, it's not stated casually when Matthew says, and he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. I mean, that's what disciples do. They follow, right? And so you might think, well, he's just stating the obvious. No, no, no. For Matthew, this is very intentional language. They followed Jesus into the boat after he had just said, following me is going to be no picnic. This is about the decision to follow Jesus into the boat. Now, they don't know exactly what they're getting into, but, but how often do we? 
So they get onto the boat as would-be disciples. And this is early in the story still. Um, not even all of, the, all of the 12 have been called yet. Um, this may just be the fishermen at this point. Uh, they're the only ones that have been, been specifically called by name. And so, so we have some, at least some professional boatsmen getting on the boat, but they're following Jesus. It says, a windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us! We are perishing. We're dying here. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So, this is a story about being swamped because of the decision to follow Jesus. Now, this is, a, this is a symbolic story, and reading this story in these terms is, is ancient. The church very early upon receiving the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, recognized that for those who didn't know Jesus, who weren't there in that moment, to read this story is to understand that we too if we decide to follow Jesus, follow him onto that boat and find ourselves in that storm. Now, the storm is chaos. The storm is overwhelming. The storm will flip this boat over and drown us all. It's important, as we read, to let the echoes of the Old Testament ring loudly. And since we just got done talking about Jonah, I wonder whether you, uh, without, without noticing the, the, the bullet point up there, whether you heard or whether before when you've read this you thought, isn't that funny? Just like Jonah was asleep in the hold of the ship in the middle of a storm, and they have to come wake him up to figure out what's going on, so Jesus is asleep in the middle of this storm and the disciples come and frantically wake him up. Now some say, well, the comparison stops there, right? Because Jonah was the cause of the storm and Jesus is the Savior. Not, you know, it, it, it's, an, it's an imperfect comparison. But, but let, me, let me assure you, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, Matthew draws a direct line between the Jesus story and the Jonah story. He wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus after three days in the tomb has something to do with the image of Jonah in the belly of the fish. There's something in this story that's calling our attention to the identity of Jesus in relation to what God is doing. Especially in relation to the resurrection. 
And so not only are we going to hear echoes from the Old Testament, but also something you might think of as reverse echoes, premonitions of the resurrection in the stories that we read this morning. So, there he is, sleeping in the hold, chaos raging around. And like so many of us who have read and prayed the Psalms, we find ourselves needing to say, Lord, wake up! What's happening here? We're on your side. We're with you. What's going on? Save us. We're perishing. I want to point out to you that 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 echo coming from the future, that premonition, is especially evident in one particular and odd word in this story. It says, a windstorm arose in my translation in the NRSV. I bet you'll have a hard time finding something that literally represents the word that's there. What it says is, a great seismos, a great tumult, a great earthquake, actually. It's literally the word that you would use to talk about the shaking of the earth. And it is not a word that you would use to talk about a windstorm. And where else do you find this word in Matthew's story? Well, you find it three other places. You find it when Jesus is talking about the future that the disciples are going to experience. And he says there will be famine and there will be earthquakes. Seismoid. In the midst of this apocalyptic, that is to say, revelationary experience of following Jesus in the future, where we bear witness and the nations rage around us. Boy, that seems relevant. I'm thinking a lot about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this week. Why do the nations rage? Why is there this chaos going on around us? Jesus says there's going to be earthquakes, and then the same word is used at the crucifixion. Matthew tells us that at the moment of Jesus' death cry, there is a seismos, a shaking of the whole world. But then most importantly, when the stone is rolled away from the tomb by the angel, by the messenger of God, the same word, but not only the same word, a number of other key words, a great seismos suddenly occurred. So the phrasing is very, very similar to what's going on on this boat in this moment. This is a moment of resurrection shock. When everything trembles because Jesus is raised. Now what that means for the churches is because Jesus is among us. 
because Jesus is here. Jesus is present. We're following Jesus into this storm. So Matthew is, and, and I grant Matthew this kind of, of, of artistry. I think Matthew knows exactly what he's doing when he chooses these words and these phrases and connects different parts of the story. I think he's calling our attention to the future in which the whole world trembles in the chaos, that future where we give our testimony. I think he's calling our attention to the cross, the, the cruciform life of Jesus coming to its culmination, coming to its climax in that, that death cry that shakes the whole world. And I think it's, he's especially calling our attention to the resurrection that changes everything. It turns the world upside down as they realized in the book of Acts. And so this this shaking, this tumult arises on the sea. That's when his followers are just about to drown because they followed him into that. And his question is, why are you afraid? Now, the answer to that is, well, because we are lifelong fishermen, because we have been navigating this particular sea our entire lives, and because we know for a fact we're about to die. That's why we're afraid. Right? This is not, this is not trivial. This is not dismissive. The question, why, why are you afraid? It's not, it's not meant to say you aren't in serious peril right now. They are, full stop, and they know it. But it's to say, if you know I'm on the ship with you, if you followed me here, why are you afraid? They, they understand by the end that that's the right question. The question is, what sort of a man are we following? Who is this that we're following? In light of that, we have to ask ourselves, why are we afraid? He calls them little faith ones. It's just one word. It's not two words. It's just it's a it's a it's a a compound word that means little faith. Um and he turns it into sort of a moniker, you little faith people. Um, it, it, he doesn't deny that they have some faith. They know to, they know to wake him up. They, they know to say, save us. They know to ask. They know to pray. Right? They know where to turn. But he's saying, it doesn't, it doesn't compute here. It doesn't make sense. Why are you afraid well, it's because your faith is small. Your faith is small. And you're asking for salvation out of fear. 
you could have very easily, we could very easily find ourselves in the midst of an overwhelmingly turbulent, terrifying, seriously dangerous situation if we follow Jesus. And the response might be not, dear Lord, wake up, save us, we're all going down with the ship, but rather, Lord, would you please? Right? Not, not fear. Reliance, trust, dependence, expectation, real need, real danger, real risk, but, but faith. Trust in Jesus. They have every reason in their guts to be worried, but they have every reason for their hearts to be full of faith in this man, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm, I'm intimidated. And that's sort of shading into fear when I think about what it means for this church to follow Jesus into God's mission in this community what it means to actually walk through the doors that God's been opening, what it means to do that knowing that um, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us time. And we all know in America, time is money. And it's going to cost us money. And it's going to cost us emotional energy that we might like to give to our spouses and children, to our work. It's going to cost us to get into relationship with, with the formerly incarcerated, to get into relationship with families that have real need. See, the thing I don't like about the story of the Good Samaritan, the thing I don't like about it is, is because it tricks me into going like, yes, I, that's what I need. I need to love my neighbor. But that dude just, just ran across the one guy. He was out of pocket a little bit for some hotel expenses and some medical expenses for this guy. But the fact is, when I think about following Jesus into my community and making my life about participation in God's mission, it's like every day, every day I've got people that need from me. And it scares me. And I'll tell you, it scares me because I've been there. I've been there. Um, I realize at some point you've got to get sick of the former missionary talking about former mission experiences, but I'm not going to stop. So... <laughs> so, um, I I share this out as a confession. I didn't learn from those experiences not to be afraid. I learned what the storm is like. I learned what it is to have constantly have in my life people that you know all the stuff about dependency and sustainability aside. People I have to look in the face on a regular basis, 
and them go, I don't have money to buy my kids school supplies. School starting and they don't have it. And I <laughs> and I'm I'm making missionary money, y'all. <laughs> but I'm the richest person they know. And that happens over and over. And when Jesus says lend with without expecting anything in return, he's not talking about interest. He's saying lend and expect that actually to be a gift. Expect not to get it back. And for our brothers and sisters in Peru, that meant that we left thousands of dollars in Peru. Um, and, and again, I say this as a confession. I, I did that out of, out of compassion and fellowship and, and, and we made those choices for our family financially. But, but I learned to fear those relationships from that. God forgive me. I did. And yet I'm called. And I want to get on the boat. And I want to ride into the storm. I want more faith. <laughs> There's a second really good boat story in Matthew. It's connected. So we're going to jump forward to Matthew 14, verse 22. And it's different this time. Immediately, he made the disciples go get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side. So now they're not following him onto the boat. They're going ahead of him on the boat. Um, which just seems way riskier if you've been through the one experience, you know what I mean? It's like... And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. And when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost! I don't, I mean, I don't, I've never seen a ghost. I imagine that I would s sound something like that. It's a, it's a ghost! Something, I don't know. It's got to be fearful. And they cried out in fear. Terror and fear. These are their reactions. But, Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. Have courage. It is I, or, let's be, let's be very clear, I am, those are the words that he says, I am the name of God. Do not be afraid. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, if, command me to come to you on the water. Okay, Peter. This is the first moment in Matthew's story where Peter kind of comes to the fore and be becomes this guy, right? 
He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, <laughs> he became frightened and began, began, and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. I'm, at, I'm sure that was quite expressive as well. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith. Oh, it's that same one. It's that, hey, little faith guy. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are truly the Son of God. Okay, so... (laughs) Um, again, I think we have to be fair. If you see someone in the very early hours of the morning walking across a stormy sea to your boat, it's fair to freak out. Fair enough, right? Um, There are images. These are Bible guys. They know their Old Testament scripture. For them, it's just the Testament. Job 9.8 describes God as who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19 Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43.16 Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. I mean, it's not beyond imagining, but let's get serious. Terror is the appropriate reaction. Okay, so Jesus doesn't really rebuke them for that. I think he kind of goes, I get it. Okay, everybody chill. Okay, it's me. It's me with a little twist here. Um, Don't be afraid. But then Peter goes, okay, let's test that. Um, If it's you... Call me to you. I want to do the same thing. Now, we don't know what Peter's motives are. Matthew doesn't speculate. There's really not a lot of... uh, It's not clear what's going on. But I can't help but read this and recognize, in light of the earlier story, in light of the understanding that this storm symbolizes a lot more than a historical moment on the Sea of Galilee, I can't help but recognize that sometimes we kind of go on ahead. Jesus says, go. Go on ahead. I'm sending you over there. Go. And we go on, and then we get caught up, and we go like, wow, there's a lot going on right here. Here we are again in the midst of another storm, real risk, real danger, rowing hard, and then Jesus sort of shows up and, and we go, Lord, is that you? Are you, are you there in that, in that elementary classroom? Lord, are you there in that halfway house? Are you there among those people? If that's you, call me over there. Call me over there. And Jesus says, Come on. 
Step out. Step out of the boat. And so we do. And we start taking a step and we go like, oh, this is awesome. And then we notice the wind on the waves. We notice that we're actually still in the middle of this storm. And we remember everything we know about that. Boy, this is going to be risky and costly and exhausting. And we don't actually know how to walk on water. And so we start sinking. And we cry out, Lord, save us. Save us. We cry out of uh, of of failure, actually. We tried. We stepped out. We made. We took the first steps, and then and then we crashed into reality again. And that faith thing continues to be the problem. You have a little faith. Why do you doubt? That's why you're failing here. It's not because this is impossible. I mean, it's technically impossible. But that's not why. You're not failing because you don't have the resources to do this. Because it's too big for you. Because you could never make any real difference in the lives of people caught up in such chaos. In such need. In a lifetime of struggle. It's not, it's not because you don't know how. Because you don't have the gifts. It's not because you're not good enough or smart enough or don't know the Bible enough. It's not because of any of that. It's not because it's impossible. It's because you won't trust me. You won't trust me. Granted, it's crazy to walk on water. But that's not the question. The only question here is, do you think I'm the Son of God? I am. Do not be afraid. Come out on the water. Step out of the boat. I think we're rowing pretty hard toward faithfulness here at Stones River. I don't know about you. I feel, I feel really good about the direction that we're moving, about, well, the fact that God is moving and that we're in this moment of going like, Jesus, is that you? If it's you, call us over there. I think it's an amazing moment to be in. It's scary. And, and, and risk assessment is wise. And, and there's a realization here that, you know, technically it should, be, it should be impossible given who we are. I mean, we're nothing special. Got our own struggles. It doesn't make a lot of sense that we should dare to intervene in the lives of others. And so I also feel like 
we're kind of scared. I feel like there's, there, there are questions in our hearts right now. Um, what if? What, hap- what happens if we actually do that? What's it gonna, how are we going to manage that? How are we going to afford that? How, how, how do we even organize for that? We don't know how to do that. What if other people don't want to come along? They feel, they feel left out. What if they're alienated? What if we fail? What if we make the attempt? And in the end, Mitchell Nielsen goes like, hey, thanks for, but, you know, it's been good. What if Julie goes like, ooh, could we, mm, I'm going to, I found another spot, okay? They seem to have a little more competence. Right? What, what if we try to be friends with our homeless neighbors and the formerly incarcerated that Julie's helping us to come into contact with and they go like, we don't really like these people. We don't want to be friends with them. What if we fail? What if we start sinking? I want to tell you these four things in conclusion. I want to tell you first of all that these stories assure us that Jesus saves faithfully despite fear and failure. Their fear and their failure have nothing to do with Jesus' response. He's going to save. We call out. We say, Jesus, save us. We blew it. Jesus, we, we passed on that opportunity. It's gone now. Forgive us. Save us. Help us, help us do better. Jesus will say yes to that. Jesus responds to that every time because Jesus is teaching us. We are his disciples. We are his learners. He doesn't question our cry for salvation. He challenges our misperception of the storm's significance. Why are you afraid? Are you afraid for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? Should you be afraid if I'm here with you? That's a challenge, but it's not, it's not a rejection of our cry for help. Secondly, fear and failure are part of our journey. They are. Jesus doesn't expect us to be fully mature and super apostolic, fearless. That's nonsense. We are, we are students of Jesus. And the risks are real. They're real. And we're not any better than these first disciples. We are these first disciples. This is our story. We are them struggling to trust and figure out who, what kind of a man am I following here and, and what's my response supposed to be to this absurd call step out onto the water. It's part of our journey. It's 
It's not something to be ashamed of. Third, failure is responding with fear instead of faith. Instead of faithfully responding to the presence of Jesus, both inside the boat and out on the water. See, failure here is about faithfulness. Now, I want to be very, very clear about this. This is, this is sort of a technical point, but it's one that I think the English-speaking church needs to get its mind around. There's only one word here in the Greek. Faith and faithfulness are the same word. Even though in your English thinking imagination they mean quite different things, they're all part of the same concept in the biblical text. It's not that we have faith and Jesus is faithful. It's that faith itself manifests as faithfulness. The fullness of our faith embodied and lived out. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's the right translation. It's not just faith. It's not just belief. See, we get stuck in this cognitive thing where, where it's like, well, if we think the right things, we believe the right things, we confess the right things. No, no, no. What, what Jesus wants from us is a trust in who he is. That's information, sure. That's cognitive. A trust in who he is embodied as a faithful response. And failure is about that. Faithfulness on our part. Faithful response to the presence of Jesus. If Jesus is in the boat with us, we're good. If Jesus is out on the water and he says, come out here, we're good. That's faithful response to Jesus. So we step out, or we ride it out, whatever the case may be. But it's not about obedience. I failed to obey. It's not about effectiveness, right? We didn't get the results that we were wanting. We're not going to look back on these years at Stones River and assess whether we were effective we're going to assess whether we were faithful. We're not going to look for outcomes, that abomination of a word. Outcomes. But no. No, we're going to ask ourselves, did we get out of the boat when Jesus says, come over here? Did we ride out that storm trusting Jesus? That's the question. And fourthly, disciples learn faithfulness through fear and failure. These experiences teach us. Now, like me, you might sometimes learn the wrong lesson. Right? Um, but these are learning opportunities. They're not just a ledger book of, oh, well, did it again, blew it again, failed again, or good job, gold star, here's your sticker. It's not that. This is a process of 
moving further into participation in what God is doing in Murfreesboro. Becoming servants of Christ with greater faithfulness with a greater recognition of who Jesus is, with a greater cry of worship when you realize you are truly the Son of God once again. We're called to weather the storm and step out of the boat. And we're going to learn a lot as we go. So church, I want to end just with a prayer for us. as we struggle to <laughs> as we struggle to say yes to Jesus' invitation and we fear the risks and the costs and we start assessing things soberly and wisely and recognize that this is indeed actually quite a shakeup that Jesus, the resurrected Lord in our midst, is causing more earthquakes, is calling us once again onto a stormy sea, is asking us to step out of the boat. As we struggle with all of that, that we would learn faithfulness and trust that Jesus is in our midst, is present, is in their midst, is present. And that means we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I... I confess my fear. I confess my trepidation. Um, I'm sorry that uh, I don't trust you better. And I pray for me and I pray for my brothers and sisters that as you call us into your presence in our community. And as you accompany us into the storm, that you would teach us faithfulness. That our confession and what we sing here and what we pray and what we read as a community seeking to be formed in faith, that that would become our life, our our embodied truth among our neighbors. That we, could, that we could live a life of fearlessness because of who you are. That seems to me, I confess, no more realistic than walking on water. It's hard for me to imagine, God, But I believe that you are capable of more than we could ask or imagine. That really and truly, 
the resources and the abilities and the capacity aren't the question, but simply whether or not you're calling us. I believe that. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Thank you, Father, for being so patient with us, for calling us again and again. Thank you for calming storms when we need it, for pulling us up out of the water when we're sinking. And thank you for raising up Jesus the Christ from the grave and shaking the whole world. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.